Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we look at Canada-China relations after the return to Canada of Michael Spaver and Michael Koverg and the departure to China of Meng Wanzhou. I'm joined by CJAI fellows Deanna Horton and Rob Wright, and by Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Deanna, Rob, and Gordon are all former diplomats with extensive Asian experience. They're also good friends of mine, and we were colleagues. Fellow at the Monk School, Deanna served in Japan and later as our ambassador to Vietnam. Rob served as our ambassador to Japan and China, as well as Deputy Minister of International Trade. Gordon served twice in Beijing, latterly as minister, and twice in Hong Kong, and he was the executive director of our office in Taipei. John worked in China for over 37 years, and he remains involved in various private sector activities in Asia. Welcome back to all of you. To remind our listeners, for over a thousand days, the Meng and Michaels situation put our China relationship into the deep freeze, as Foreign Minister Garneau referred to it. It scuttled the Trudeau government's China policy of, quote, comprehensive economic engagement that they hoped was going to lead to a free trade agreement or some kind of a closer economic or, uh, economic or relationship, as China applied trade sanctions on our beef and canola as part of their furious retaliation over our decision to proceed with the U.S. extradition request for Meng Wanzhou as she transited through Vancouver in December 2018. Public opinion in Canada, in terms of favorability towards China, has dived, not just in Canada, but throughout the democracies in the face of aggressive Chinese behavior with Taiwan and India and its neighbors in the South China Seas. There is well-documented reports of genocide in Zhenjiang and the re-education camps for the Uyghurs. Its crackdown on representative government in Hong Kong, home to over 300,000 Canadians, is in violation of China's treaty obligations. Its wolf warrior diplomacy, the former Chinese ambassador to Canada, accused us of being a nation of white racists, only exacerbates the chill in relations. For Canada, the policy challenges are many. 51 years ago, Pierre Trudeau established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China because he knew China was too big to ignore. If Canada, he argued, wanted to be a respectable and responsible global player, we had to have a relationship with China. And as Paul Evans points out in his brilliant little book on China-Canada relations, China saw Canada as an independent Western nation with the additional advantage of being a good place from, being, from which to observe what's going on in the United States. Even with the sanctions and chilled relationship, China continues to be our second largest bilateral trading partner. Before the pandemic, China, Chinese tourists uh, were our second largest source and there were over 100,000 Chinese students in Canada, our second largest source of foreign students. These people-to-people -people ties are only increasing through immigration. Canadians who identify themselves as being of Chinese ethnic descent make up over 5% of the Canadian population. So that's context. Let's get started. The question I want to begin with, and I'm going to start with you, Gordon, is what lessons, lessons do we learn from the Michaels Meng affair? Like several lessons can be learned. One is that, well, 
one could say on one hand that our 50-year relationship, diplomatic relationship with China has been um, at times steady. Uh, reality is that it will, it has been and will be subject to shocks, periodic shocks that will push it sideways uh, or push it backward. Secondly, I say that the public support for foreign policy, which is seldom a headline issue, that is our domestic uh, constituency on foreign policy is relatively small. That public policy support for a relationship with China is fractured and very small. So this is a huge inhibitor, I believe, going forward. And thirdly, that while Xi Jinping presides over a what is now a de facto superpower, it is a superpower with characteristics that differ sharply from those of our near neighbor and ally, and ones which are where political values, social values, philosophy of government is sharply different. And that really inhibits how close we can ever be to, to Beijing as long as these differences remain so, so wide. Rob, both of us have participated in some of the track two discussions that Gordon has handled so adroitly over the last few years and which I think we're gonna probably need more of. What did you learn from this the Michael's Meng affair. Well, I think uh, I certainly agree with the comments that Gordon has made. China has changed, really changed quite profoundly from when we were there and uh, from, I, I was there at least from 2005 to 2009. At that point in time, the Chinese were genuinely interested in our views and, and, and invited us uh, to participate in discussions about the evolution of the political economic uh, structures in China. That's changed. China is more aggressive than it was before. Um, and I think it's taught us, uh, this episode has taught us that we can't assume that China is moving closer to the Western rule of law. That was something that we'd hoped would happen with increased integration in the multilateral system. I don't think we can assume that anymore. Um, we've learned, of course, that we shouldn't put ourselves in a position where this could happen again. And I assume that the Canadian government is looking at the ways in which we will enforce our extradition agreement with the United States so that we won't find ourselves in a similar situation in the future. Um, and we've learned, I think, that coalitions are very important, that uh, they work. When you spend your time developing coalitions of interest with countries with like interest, as we did in this case, it takes time, it takes effort. Diplomacy uh, is hard work, but it works. And I think uh, this case is evidence that this kind of coalition building and the establishment of this declaration against arbitrary detention, uh, which came into effect earlier this year is an important tool in that, in that toolbox. It's something that we should continue to pursue in the future. Um, before I pass on to Deanna, I just wanna follow up on that, the arbitrary detention. Do, do you think Rob, that we don't need to add some kind of sanction to it because it's a declaration, but uh, for it to have any kind of effect, while the words are important, do we, should we not perhaps put teeth to it? I, I think the Chinese pay attention to words. They pay attention to coalitions of this nature. They like to think that they're effective in their use of soft power. So I think the fact that we have more than 60 countries that have agreed to this declaration is important. And I, I assume that we're gonna to continue to try to get more countries to sign on to it. But yes, indeed, I'd like to see us add some teeth to it. I'm not sure what that would be, 
Um, and we certainly wouldn't want to do it in a way that would lose participants, but I would think that uh, active discussions are probably going on now to see how it could be amended to, to uh, bring some force to the declaration to try to ensure that this never happens again. Tiana, you know, you've, you've got a lot of Asian experience. What, what was your sort of takeaway sitting from where you are and in, in, in Southern Ontario? Well, um, last week I, I moderated a wonderful uh, discussion with a Japanese expert on China named Takahara Akio. And um, I thought I really wanted to do this because I think that when you're looking at the relationship with China, Japan has a pretty uh, close and unique uh, relationship with China. And so I wanted to hear what, what a China expert would say. And I was very interested in the fact that, and this is, um, I think, uh, talking uh, when you're talking about soft power, um, he uh, suggested that there is a gap between China's soft words and tough deeds. Um, and that, you know, China has big power syndrome, um, which involves self righteousness. Uh, and kind of a leadership uh, tendency towards um, aggressiveness and uh, et cetera. But on the other hand, uh, the importance to strike a balance between competition and cooperation, which is really vital for the Japan-China relations. So looking at it from a Canadian perspective, and this is also uh, riffing off a bit on what Rob had to say. I mean, what the, what the um, Mang Wanzhou to Michael's affair uh, told me was, first of all, Canada has no leverage on its own. And the coalition building was essential. I think it also had implications for the US relationship as well. How long would this have gone on? And how, how important was the US leaders uh, on impact on how long it did it did take. Um, so I think that's I think that's another aspect to it. But also, and finally, most importantly, I think that when we're talking about the coalition building and allies, I think it's very important that we look beyond China in Asia. And I think there's so when when Canadians think about allies, they always think NATO we have to start thinking about allies in terms of people in a other important uh, countries in Asia, such as Japan, Republic of Korea, the ASEAN nations, Taiwan, et cetera. Um, Dan, I wanna follow up on that because, you know, we, we have a closer now security relationship with uh, Japan after Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe's visit to meeting with Mr. Trudeau a couple of years ago. We have uh, the relationship with uh, Korea, part through the UN, and a couple of years ago, our acting chief of defense staff, Wayne Eyre, was the deputy commander of the UN so group. So we, we have that. Are, are you suggesting that maybe we should look at the, the, the Australia, uh, United Kingdom, US, uh, or the Quad or something like that? No, because I don't think that we have the um, resources, 
nor do we have the inclination, but, and, and you're looking at it on the security side, I'm thinking about it more in terms of um, what we can do on the military side, all we can do is be helpful on things like capacity building, the, the soft side of, of the military, the training, things like that. And we already do that. But what I'm thinking about more is how do we build how do we build coalitions on things that are of interest to us with these partners? So things like, I'm thinking more about the digital economy partnerships and, and things like that on climate change, on all kinds of um, advanced uh, technology issues, which is where I'm, I'm most interested, building the digital economy. There are lots of things that we can do where we can build partnerships that are encompassing of allies in the much larger sense in Asia, but also in other continents as well. Diana, the other you, and I think very astute observation is the relationship with the United States. I think as you point out, we probably wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened if the Americans hadn't really weighed in. Um, I'd like you to comment on this and I'd turn to Rob because Rob, you also served in the United States. On the U.S. relationship, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I think that um, in an in an ideal world, perhaps the U.S. would have said, "This is obviously causing a lot more trouble than it's worth." We have two. We have two individuals who are now imprisoned, and figured out a way to have the the kind of deferred prosecution agreement that they eventually got. They could have backed down a bit on that one. And, and, and perhaps launched it a little earlier than having to wait a thousand days. So um, taking responsibility, and I understand that yes, there was, the US did make um, over uh, all kinds of different uh, demarches and, and um, demands of the government of China, but without wanting to uh, back down on the extradition request. Rob, why do you think? I, mean, I, I think that under Mr. Trump, it was always problematic. He perhaps saw them uh, and referred at one point as Meng Wanzhou as a kind of a, a pawn in a trade deal. But under Mr. Biden, who's put big emphasis on rebuilding alliances, commitment to multilateralism, and has said to us, we have the roadmap in place, does want to use us, I think, as a bit of a demonstration to other allies that we that the United States is reliable. I'd be interested in your perspective on on, on the American, particularly the Biden administration's handling of this? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question, but that they helped resolve this in a way that brought the two Michaels home. I, I don't think there's any question about that. And I, I see some denials in Beijing, here in Ottawa and Washington about uh, high level interference in this process. But in fact, my, my own view is that President Biden and his uh, administration did work uh, uh, hard to get the two Michaels back. And I have no doubt that the fact that uh, President Biden raised it with Xi Jinping uh, contributed to the fact that the exchange took place. We were all surprised, I know you were, uh, Colin, that the release of the Canadians was made at exactly the same time as the, as the uh, deferred prosecution agreement was agreed and Madame Meng got on a plane to fly back. That takes a lot of coordination. So there's no doubt in my mind that 
discussions along these lines has been going on for some time. I agree that the US needed to do this, frankly. First of all, they got us into this because of the request through their Department of Justice, and I think they recognize some responsibility to help find a solution to it. But I think also President Biden and his administration wanted to send a signal to allies, and there are no closer allies to the United States than Canada, despite what the Australians might think. Um, uh, he wanted to send a signal to allies that the US would be there to back up the interests of allies in a, in a situation like this. So I think it was, uh, it was good. It was a signal that US is willing to work with us. I think just pick up the point that Deanna made about the quad, the so-called quad in the Pacific. I, I do think, I'm not sure what the quad does other than talk and coordinate about strategies in the Pacific region. I don't see any reason why Canada shouldn't approach that group and ask to uh, participate, at least as an observer, in the discussions that take place. I agree with Deanna that we don't have the resources to buy uh, nuclear-powered submarines, and probably we shouldn't be doing so. But, but I do think we should be uh, talking, coordinating a little bit more than we have in the past years with that group. We are a Pacific country, if not a Pacific power, and I think it's incumbent on us to look more seriously about the uh, challenges that China offers or presents in the Pacific and work uh, closely with, with allies in the discussion of how to respond to those. Rob, we've, we've been sort of knocking at the door, not always but with great vigor on things like the East Asian Summit, but we'd like to have a freer trade with the ASEAN nations. We, you know, we do have the, the, the CPTPP, but even on that, there was a certain ambivalence or appeared to be on the part of the Trudeau government before they sort of finally came around and embraced it. Uh, your point, which I think is a good one about coalitions, then Diana is making the point of that there are things that we could do that are already there. I take on board the quad, I think that makes sense. Are there some other existing ones you think we could be more vigorous in? As you know, one of the criticisms of the Asians is that we're kind of peripatetic. And I say it's in part because of minority governments, ministers can't make all the visits they would like, but you know your 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 perception as to what more we might do in terms of either Asia Pacific or Indo Pacific, however you want to call it. Well, the 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 obvious one initially, at least, is enlargement of the CT uh, CPTPP, um, um, and I think we should be working within that group to try to encourage the United States to join. I think that would be something that would be beneficial in the region. I don't see any prospect, despite the fact that China has now applied formally to join it, uh, the TPP. I don't see any prospect that that would happen, particularly in light of these events. Um, the Australians, the Canadians, the Japanese would, would uh, more likely than not be opposed to that at this stage. Um, and of course, we can't forget that the United States has in effect a veto um, over trade agreements that Canada might negotiate with other countries. So I don't know whether that would apply if uh, the uh, TPP considered enlargement to include uh, a country like China. So I would like to see us do more in the trade and investment side in the Pacific region. We can do more through bilateral and multilateral consultations. And as I say, I would like to see us approach the quad and uh, see whether there are areas where we could cooperate. Uh, an area, by the way, I think uh, is of interest to Canada, the United States and Japan is Arctic sovereignty. I know we have our own agenda there. But I would like to see us cooperate more with at least those partners and perhaps others in the Pacific region um, to discuss and perhaps put in place means in which 
we can assert to a greater degree than we have in the past our sovereignty over those regions. Interesting. Now, th there's another applicant for the CPTPP. Well, a couple of applicants, I think Britain, but there's also Taiwan. And I want you to comment on this one as well, Gordon. What would you, Rob, what do you think about the Taiwanese application? Yeah, well, if, if I could speak first, it's problematic. I think that's the way to put it. I think uh, I'd love to see Taiwan play a larger institutional role in some of these organizations in the Pacific region, but we all know the pressures that would bring in terms of our relationship with China. So we have to tread very carefully. This is not an issue that Canada should lead the way on. Um, let's see how this discussion evolves over the coming weeks and months. But we're not the ones who should take the lead in proposing that Taiwan join the TPP, in my view. Gordon, the Chinese reaction to, I mean, they've applied. Is this just an effort to stick the spoke in the wheel, or do you think it's a serious uh, undertaking? And, 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 and again, the question I put to Rob about Taiwan. Well, I think for the Chinese, I think they can read the same tea leaves. They got a pretty sophisticated foreign policy establishment that they will recognize. And you can see the, the reaction of the, in effect, senior member of the organization, Japan, um, pretty uniformly negative Australian reaction as well, negative the prospect of Chinese membership. Um, the, um, the problem for Taiwan, I mean, I'm highly sympathetic to Taiwan in many ways, partly having lived there, having many friendships and contacts there. Uh, in the case of WTO, there was a package deal arranged um, whereby both China and Taiwan would enter the WTO, China first, and then followed by Taiwan, um, not under its name, of course, but as a special, a separate customs union. And that worked. That was a China that was far weaker than it is today, a China that desperately wanted at the time for a variety of reasons to get into the WTO. Um, I cannot imagine that there could be, forget the political dimension, there could even be sufficient reform of the operation of the Chinese economy to make them ready to assume the disciplines of a high quality trade agreement, such as CPTPP, very hard to imagine. For Taiwan, I'm, I, I'm, I'm torn here. The minute you start, you started seriously contemplating their entry, China will have a lot of ways uh, to strike back and it would be, and don't underestimate that. We talk here as if it's for the West and Canada only to on the chessboard as if we have all the pieces and, and looking forward, how we're gonna deal with China. China is a powerful state that has its own pieces on the board. It may not have allies, but it's got a huge number of countries that are which, is, which are more or less economic dependent or at least where China is the number one trading partner. They would have reasons, they would have ways to make that more difficult and they might well compensate by pretty far harder pressure on Taiwan by other means. They've got a lot of, they've got a levers they can pull. My own view, highly sympathetic to Taiwan, is that we need to make sure that there aren't bilateral problems that prevent trade developing between us, they're relatively few, that they aren't there, but that full membership would be a bridge too far and it might bring unintended consequences both from China and from Chinese pressure on Taiwan. However, Taiwan is in the front line. It's a thoroughly democratic state. It has, by recent assessments, uh, a more sophisticated in some ways or a more perfect democratic system than the United States in terms of popular participation uh, and measures such as that. Uh, I don't think we in the West 
can afford to let Taiwan slip into Chinese hands. If you could, if you could tell me that 50 years from now, Taiwan will still be a non-state international law, but will still be prosperous, de facto independent, its own military, and a high standard of living for all of its people, I would say, wonderful. That's the best result you're gonna get. My fear is push independence, push uh, against China too hard, and you may end up with uh, a Taiwan that um, might briefly be independent, but would be suffering the impact of that massive PLA force on the other side. So I'd say tiptoe softly, let's put aside Taiwan application. China, we don't need to worry. Lots of others besides us will object and they'll never qualify in the foreseeable future. Anna, what, you know, Taiwan, I know you've been doing a fair bit of work with Japan and then my sense is that Japanese will certainly and would facilitate if they could the Taiwanese entry. Um, and my other, I'd like you to then sort of pivot from there. I know you've been doing an awful lot of work sort of mapping Canadian investment and things in the Asia Pacific. Do you want to say a word about that? Because I think that's an important piece of the bigger part of the puzzle in terms of what Rob and Gordon both said about increasing our engagement while serving Canadian interests in Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific. Well, yes, and in fact, if you recall, Colin, uh, there was a um, an excellent session that was CGAI did on Taiwan that I moderated, and uh, Liz I do indeed looking, <laughs> looking at uh, some of the uh, proposals. One of them that I found was quite interesting. Everyone supported uh, Taiwan entering the CPTPP. Uh, one suggestion was that Taiwan should kind of slip in at the same time as uh, South Korea uh, in order to deflect attention. I, I don't know whether that would work. I would certainly support uh, South Korea going into CPTPP. And on, on Rob's point, I mean, the thing about the U.S. coming into uh, this agreement is, and I was, I was just reading a, a paper that had been prepared in Washington at one of the think tanks, about this. And of course, if the US comes into CPTPP, there will be a big, uh, somewhat of a change because they will not come in without a, a lot of demands that I don't know whether the current uh, grouping is going to accept. So that that is something we, we all need to stay tuned for. Um, so the elephant in the room, though, is is the Chinese economy. And um, just the, what happened in the pandemic really demonstrated the importance of China in global value chains. And certainly when you look at China has not, has done well in terms of inward investment, even during this period. So I think that there, um, a way to handle the, um, how shall I say this? So if China, it, there has been a lot of discussion about why don't we cut off trade with China? That is unrealistic. So this whole question of um, the, the four C's that the foreign minister mentioned, coexist, well, we're going to coexist. That's, that's not a, a question. Um, compete. To what extent does Canada compete with China? In a lot of cases, in a lot of ways, our economies are actually complementary. Um, but one has to think about 
the role that China has in these very important uh, value chains. And I think in terms of cooperation, there are a lot of areas that we should be compete that we, we should be cooperating with China and with other countries in Asia to build consensus about things that we can. Um, so everybody cites climate change. That's one, but climate change incorporates a lot of different technologies where Canada does have some expertise and interest in Asia, as demonstrated by the research that I do which shows our involvement in digital economy in Asia. So for example, uh, green energy, there are lots of other technologies that, um, uh, that we support e-commerce platforms. We are good on services and analytics. We have a lot of business software expertise. We can help a lot of economies grow and, and a lot of, and, and even combating aging society. A lot of Asia is young, but China is definitely older. There are lots of technologies that are related to that, to education. So that's another area where we have technologies that are being utilized in uh, globally, uh, but specifically in Asia. So I think there's a lot of room for um, growth uh, in a way that is, um, commensurate with what we are able to do, that is cooperation with China and other countries so that we don't have, we're not forcing an either or. No country in Asia wants to choose the US or, or China and neither, does, neither should we. So there are ways to approach this in a way that will not only, that will cooperate, but also obviously we will still have to be challenging China in conjunction with our partners in Asia and beyond on issues that are critical to our own interests. Building on the coalitions that Rob talked about before, and I, I wanna come back to what uh, Minister Garner talked about in the, the sort of the four points you pointed out. But before I get there, I wanna, the question I put to first Rob and, and to Gordon is why do you think the Chinese agreed at this time to this deal, I mean, clearly the American, the, the uh, deferred prosecution agreement had a big piece in it, but the release of the, uh, the Michaels, certainly my thought was that there would have been a period of time uh, given the experience with Garrett's and others before we saw them. And certainly my my conversations with the Chinese, it was always, well, free Meng Wanzhou, and then we'll see about the other, but it all happened as she pointed out at the outset, Rob, all, all it was a quite an extraordinary day. Why do you think the Chinese decided to uh, release the, the Michaels at the same time? And Rob, I'll start with you. What, what led Xi Jinping to, because I think the decision probably came from the top. I agree. I think it did come from the top. I think it came from the top both in China and in Beijing, by the way. Uh, oh, sorry, in, in Washington China, and Beijing. And in Washington. That's right, yes. in Beijing and in Washington. I, I think there's three basic reasons. I think, first of all, Madame Manga, she made no secret about the fact she wanted to go home. She'd be, despite the fact she was living in her mansion in Vancouver, she'd been out of her country for th more than three or three years and wanted to go back to uh, China. So I think that had an impact on the Chinese decision. And her, as we know, her father and Huawei are very close to uh, Xi Jinping. 
Um, and uh, so I suspect there's some pressure from the company itself and from uh, her father to she to get her back sooner rather than later. Secondly, I think U.S. pressure, we've already talked about that, but I think President Biden uh, made a personal intervention that, um, that uh, with President Xi um, that the Canadians should be released. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if the White House uh, discussed with the Department of Justice the fact that if they uh, if they were to reach a deferred prosecution agreement with Madame Meng, then the Canadians should be released at exactly the same time. And then thirdly, I, I think uh, the fact that there was increasing pressure from the international community, uh, there was this declaration against arbitrary detention, um, I think had an impact. And I think the Chinese realized they may have overplayed their hand on this. I agree with, I disagree, by the way, with a lot of commentators who've written about this deal that this really just uh, confirmed for the Chinese that hostage diplomacy works. I think quite the contrary. I think the Chinese probably recognize the fact that they've lost some influence internationally as a result of this episode. And I think they'll think very carefully. I hope they'll think very carefully before they uh, go back into the same kind of hostage diplomacy in the future. I, th I think this has had an impact and I, I would be surprised if China went back to this practice as aggressively as they have in this case. Well, we certainly hope so. Gordon, what's your sense and why China decided to you know, basically drop the mirage that these were two separate events and, and bundle them together and send the Michaels home at the same time that, aside from the fact that it was probably part of the deal, but they actually carried through with it. Well, I agree with what Rob said, but most particularly his comment about the recognition in China that the taking the two Michaels hadn't worked particularly well for them. And I think that's perhaps even an understatement. The, the coalition, the criticism, but also, and again, I, while I disagree as much as China does, I do respect their capacity for analysis and their ability to shift gears. Um, and that also had fooled me because I assumed that it would be, as you noted, Colin, similar to the treatment in the case of the Garrett's, where there was a time frame imposed. But let's imagine that it had just been Hmong going back. Um, I believe that, that would have just redoubled the anger and the activism in Canada and elsewhere about the two Michaels. Um, knowing, as we know, that, they, that the cases are linked, that would have been an ongoing firestone of inequity and unhappiness. And again, China is capable of finally calculating their interests. They sometimes get it wrong. Uh, but in this case, I actually think they did the right thing. Now, of course, they couldn't quite bring themselves to admit that the cases were linked even after it's happened. It was, for Chinese audience mainly, that was a medical release. They were ill and asked to go home, that sort of fiction. Uh, but the reality was a simply hard-headed calculation uh, in the Politburo signed off or at least maybe even initiated by Xi Jinping himself, we'll do this. And on the point of, of Rob's, I also agree with, they may not rush to do it again. I think that's likely uh, be that they won't do it again soon. And that is, they won't do hostage taking. Yeah, the hostage taking. They yeah. won't do it again because of the results of which they harvested. But as well, during that thousand days, if you note, they didn't take any other Canadians. We've got 300,000 Canadian citizens plus in China at any given time, if hostages were working, why not take 100, 10, 100,000? Uh, they stopped at that too and did not replicate that even while the mum case dragged on. Now, there will be cases 
guaranteed, there have been, as long as the PRC existed, where individuals from country X, Y, or Z are, are held in China under conditions that we don't approve of or for reasons we don't approve of. Uh, sometimes they simply they're not allowed to leave. The United States has just got back a couple in the last couple of days who had been um, um, to sisters who've been held there um, as part of a legal process. That will keep coming up. But the crystal clear snatching of two people as a tit for tat given a Chinese person be affected abroad, I think we've seen the end of that for a time at least. Never is a long time, but I would be surprised to see China revert to that in the near future. Do you think we're going to have to be slightly more cautious because you know, there's a lot of uh, Ch Chinese doing business in Canada. If we were to proceed with uh, charging someone uh, for whatever reason, that that might cause us some problems back in China. It's you know, just commercial contracts and things. Or even have, always... think of the students over here. If somebody gets into trouble with the law, uh, you know, this is a tactic to get the people back. It's going to be an issue for many. Canadians of Chinese origin are living in China who are involved in business. If you get in a dispute between partners, particularly Chinese partner, that may well mean you're either under arrest or you're at least prevented from leaving the country. A similar dispute here in Canada would be a civil matter entirely. It would be before the courts, but without any prospect of anyone being in prison unless there's direct crime involved. So these cases will come up, but I wouldn't anticipate anything as bald uh, or as bold as simply snatching people utterly unrelated to the case, simply to make a point. At least that would be my hope. I want to move now to sort of new China policy. The, uh, on the weekend, Foreign Minister Mark Arnault said that we, 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 our new policy will be based on an eyes wide open and the, the four-fold approach to China, as uh, uh, Deanna pointed out, uh, coexist, compete, cooperate, and challenge. What do you think this means and how will we work in terms of the big baskets of sort of trade, security, and people-to-people -people relations? Rob, why don't you start on this? Because we're, you know, that it's clear the government's going to have to put flesh on these words, which seem to me somewhat derivative of where the Americans sort of have talked about, and and our our China strategy, our Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific strategy, has been. Um, rumbling about for the last five years, but we've not yet to see it, but it seems that we may now be on the verge of something. So what do you think it, how, how would you, what would you put as the big baskets and how would you uh, bring flesh to these, uh, these words of coexist, compete, cooperate and challenge? Yeah, I, actually, I thought that was a good statement by the Canadian foreign minister, as I thought it was uh, a, good, a good statement that he made in, uh, before the United Nations. Um, I think the fact that he said that we will not forget is an understatement. There's no question about that. Public opinion, as others have said, in Canada has shifted dramatically uh, about China. Um, there has been a profound change in the way Canadians view China. I think previously, and this was certainly my experience in serving in China, our interests and our policy was driven by our trade and economic interests. In fact, it worried me at the time, I can remember at the time being worried that we paid too much attention to our trade and economic interests, to the views and advice of the business community and how we managed our relationship. And uh, so I think a reformulation of that, a re-examination of that aspect of our relationship is important. We need to trade with China. There's no question about that. There are enormous opportunities over there, but I think we need to do it with our eyes open. I think uh, 
one of the earliest decisions the government's going to have to make is with Hawaii, about Huawei. We've talked about this before, but I'd be very surprised. We'll, we'll see what the government decides, but I personally would be surprised if uh, our government, if the Canadian government now agreed to proceed with uh, a contract with Huawei in terms of 5, 5G. Um, I've talked already about the idea that we need to do more with other partners in the region. I think we're probably all agreed on that. Um, the, uh, uh, I think we have to recognize that whatever relationship, whatever policy we put in place in the future, it has to look at not just our trade and economic interests, that will be a, a key driver of it, um, but the, overall, the other aspects of the relationship as well, and that relates to security, that relates to people-to-people -people exchanges. So clearly there's going to need to be a reboot in the relationship. My understanding is the government is already working on that and that we'll have some ideas put forward in the near term, but it's not going to be like it was uh, 10 years ago or even five years ago. It'll be a different kind of relationship. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing moving forward. And that different relationship with China, but I think as you said, greater embrace with the Indo-Pacific. Absolutely. And I, I've mentioned the Quad, but I, but I think the TPP is another example of that and, and other forms of cooperation with our partners in the Pacific region. I, you know, I, I think we've, I don't want to call us a free rider. I think we have coasted a little bit in our bilateral and plurilateral relationships in the Pacific region. I'd like to see us invest more um, uh, in that region than we have in the past. We've talked a good line about focusing more on the Pacific, but almost all of our focus has been on the trade and investment files. And I, I think we need to do more on the other aspects of our relationships in the region. Gordon? Well, I think that the foreign minister's words, which I thought were a good start, were almost a direct echo of what came out of Washington in the spring. Americans put it as um, uh, compete, cooperation, and confrontation. Not precisely the same, but very similar. It's not a bad thing to be broadly aligned uh, with the Americans when it comes to China. I see trouble going forward though, because the Canadian public is so set negatively vis-a-vis -vis China now. And actually to the point, I say quite frankly, that many Chinese Canadians, this is anecdotal, uh, feel very uncomfortable in Canada now um, and feel uh, persecuted and believe that the anti-China rhetoric has ended up with them in a difficult situation and uh, with incidents of anti-Asian ra racism, which actually end up targeting even Japanese, Canadians, and others. Uh, it's not the government's intent, but I think for some of those who say, I only have an issue with the Communist Party of China, no trouble with China, and then give a list, of, a long list of, of measures, uh, the Chinese-Canadian community feels uneasy. Uh, I, I hear that from many in the university community, at least, uh, who will very, feel very uncomfortable. But I think the the difficulty going forward will not just be public views, which are stridently anti-China now. I hear often on talk shows comments like, we shouldn't even trade with them. We should have absolutely nothing to do with them, that sort of thing. But also for the political landscape that we now have post-election with a minority government, um, I don't think the government's going to get an easy buy-in for a China policy that still includes um, elements of cooperation say on, China, on climate change, that recognizes that of all our major trading partners in 2020, the only one that grew was China. Heavens, FDI rebounded strongly into China in 2020, strongly. Asia is the only region where FDI in general uh, came off better than the rest of the world. 
So I don't think it's going to be easy for the government to say, well, um, we're very leery about China politically, um, but we're becoming more dependent economically. 12% of the Canada Pension Fund is invested in China. Um, it's that complexity will be very hard, I think, for the government to sell. It might not have mattered 20 years ago, but now this is a front page issue in the Canadian public. Maybe not an election determining one, but still a front page, front page debate. And whatever the Liberal government comes up with, I can predict strong negative reaction from at least one large party. Uh, I don't think it'll be an easy ride. My right, final question I'm gonna to put to all three of you and start with you, Gordon. The, um, we've had a China-Canada committee in this minority parliament for the last two. Do you think that's a useful thing because it keeps the focus of parliamentarians on China? Gordon? Well, I'm all in favor of discussion of policy. Um, I would never have been able to be elected dog catcher anywhere. So my ways of approaching issues are very different from those of the parliamentarians. I like the idea of the committee. I'd like to see use a little bit less as a political attack dog approach, or rather one where its, um, its aim is really political, aimed at the government or elsewhere, and rather one which is more fact-finding. And I was a little bit more sober, meeting sometimes more frequently, perhaps in, in closet, and, and rather than um, being a, an element of grandstanding, I'm not pointing a finger at any particular party there, but yes, a China committee is a good thing. I just want to tweak with the way it's run. Rob? I agree with that. I, I think uh, I've, had to, I've had to testify in front of the committee on a number of occasions. Yeah, I, it is a bit of a gotcha committee, or it has been a bit of a gotcha committee, and I would like to see it focus more on the medium to longer term relationship and, and develop good advice, good discussion on where Canada should be going. By the way, uh, a, uh, another point that I meant to raise, and I'll use the occasion now to do so, I think we need much greater coordination within the government, much greater coherence within the government on the management of the relationship with China. It's very fractured at the moment. It's partly PCO, it's partly foreign affairs, it's partly trade, it's partly the environment. Somebody needs to take charge of this relationship and I'd like to see a designation of a senior minister in the new government who has overall responsibility for ensuring the co coherence and coordination of our approach with the Chinese. It makes good sense. Deanna, the sort of last word on this, in terms of the committee and coordination within government and coherence. Agree. I agree with all of this, but I think that the best way forward would be for Canada to finally develop an Asia policy that incorporates China. So it's not the focus on China so much, but as Asia writ large, because frankly, the future economic prosperity of Canada is very dependent on Asia our economies need to be even more intertwined and all kinds of ancillary benefits on people to people, et cetera. Uh, we need to do that. And let's take the focus off China, China, China and go towards Asia and include China in that because that is how the Asians approach it. And yes, uh, they did a study in Singapore of elites in, in Asia. They overwhelmingly agree that China is, uh, that China is the most economic, important economic partner. At the same time, 
They also say, well, we're a little bit concerned about this, but you can do both at the same time. And that's what we need to do. All right, a lot more room for discussion. Uh, thank you. My final question, and I'll start with you, Deanna. What are you reading or streaming these days? I have just finished reading Evening in the Palace of Reason by James Gaines about the lives of Johann Sebastian Bach and Frederick the Great, intertwined with the Age of Enlightenment and the idea of Germany. This provides some great context for understanding the German election. <laughs> Excellent. Gordon, what are you reading? Well, I'm in the process still of reading the book called Aftershocks, um, uh, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order by Colin Call and Thomas Wright. And um, what interests me in particular is Colin Call, as you know, is the Undersecretary of Defense, but the Secretary of Defense is not a policy person. So to me, uh, that book is, is giving me a little bit of an insight, I hope, into thinking within the Defense Department generally, uh, looking at 21st century and America's place within it. Excellent. Rob, what are you reading or streaming? The, uh, well, given the state of the world, I've been hiding uh, in novels for the last little while. <laughs> I, I, just, I just read an interesting one called Mistress in the Art of Death by Ariana Franklin about a 12th century sleuth, a doctor from Sicily in the UK who solves mysteries. It's really a wonderful, a wonderful escape from the difficult uh, issues the world is facing. Uh, on the, in uh, the non-novel area, I just finished reading, and I should have read this some time ago. It's an interesting, A Spy Among Friends um, by Ben McIntyre. It's about yes. Phil B. and McLean and Burgess. I'm sure you guys have read it already. It's really interesting. It's just fascinating the way these guys got away with what they did um, in the U UK Secret Service and in the CIA. It's a little dated, but it is really a remarkable story. Oh, I, I completely agree, and it, it is also, it beautifully written and it just fascinating it reads like a spy novel yes it does which which in effect it is yes. all right <laughs> well, well well thanks all and thanks for listening to this episode of the global exchange we were joined today by deanna horton gordon holdman and rob wright remember you can find the cja network on itunes spotify and google play if you like the show give us a rating you can also find the canadian global affairs institute on facebook twitter and linkedin the Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange. <laughs>